welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. Although I think most Canadians would expect that the contribution of university students to the war efforts of the 20th century would be substantial, I doubt that many would be aware of how our universities prepared them for battle. That's the subject of our guest this week. He's Eric McGeer, and his book is entitled Varsity Soldiers, the University of Toronto Contingent of the Canadian Officers Training Corps, published by the University of Toronto Press. We reached Dr. McGeer at his office in Toronto. Eric, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. It's a great pleasure to talk with you. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Tell me what happened on June 2nd, 1866. Well, that was a very fabled day in the history of Toronto and of Ontario because that was when uh, a party of Canadian militia went down to Fort Erie near the American border to repel the attack of the Fenians, who are these Irish-American paramilitaries who thought they could strike at Canada as a means of extracting concessions from Britain as to Irish independence. And there was a group of the University of Toronto students, which had been part of the Canadian militia, who were sent down. And in the battle that followed at Ridgeway on June the 2nd, three of them were killed. So the University of Toronto company suffered the highest casualties of any Canadian unit involved. And the shock of that was tremendous. Uh, when you read the newspaper accounts uh, of them bringing the bodies back and lying in state at the university, uh, the fact that the university was a much smaller place, about 250 students and faculty altogether, so all of them knew one another. And so the deaths of these three young men uh, say, sent re- profound reverberations throughout the university. They remembered it for years afterwards. But it was also the symbolism of what the university had sacrificed that day, that as British North Americans, they felt they had they had shown that the university was committed to the defense of what they would have called you know, a sort of British system as opposed to the rowdy republicanism, as they called it, of the United States. And so through the 19th century, when you think of the commemoration of the War of 1812 or the commemoration of Ridgeway or the repulsion of the Fenian raids, it was an assertion of Canadian independence against the fear or threat of American annexation or being overshadowed by the Americans. It gave this fledgling country a kind of identity, and the University of Toronto was extremely proud of its role in that way. The return of these three had a significant impact on the University of Toronto, and you explore that in your book. Can you explain this a little bit better? Well, I think, and it comes back at different times in the university's history, the very idealistic and very you know, enthusiastic uh, feel of youth. And then, of course, they meet the terrible reality of war that you get killed. But the, 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 the idea that this idealism could come at a price. But at the same time, uh, it, it gave the university a sense of collective identity. They rallied around that Ridgeway myth, and they, they told it for years afterwards. I mean, 50 years after that battle, they were still having commemorative dinners. Really? And, of course, the, the efforts of the university to memorialize Ridgeway, there was a beautiful monument uh, donated uh, immediately after the battle with the names of the students. That memorial was destroyed in the fire in 1890, and they made a significant effort to replace that memorial with something even more impressive, which is still in the east wing of University College, which people can see today. So, as I say, it, it was probably the watershed event in the university's history before the First World War. And this is this serves as a prologue. I mean, your book really 
you, you talk about all this in your book, but your focus is really what happens uh, starting in 1914. Your book is about the Canadian Officers Training Corps, uh, but it's a lot more than that. I mean, I, and it's delightful to read, to see all these pictures of the U of T campus under military uh, dress. Uh, but the book is about, it's about, it's about the Training Corps, but it's about the University of Toronto. It's about life in the city. It's a lot about politics. Tell me more about that, that aspect. Well, when I began the research, uh, it, it dawned on me more and more just how intricately connected the, the training corps has been to the life of the university, because it did involve students from all the different colleges, all the different faculties. It involved professors from all over the campus. The university presidents, uh, Robert Faulkner, Henry John Cody, and Sidney Smith, uh, all were avid supporters of the training corps, and it it was symbolic of the university's commitment to the welfare and defense of the country at a time when, uh, let's say, participation in the militia was part of being good as a good citizen. And so the, the university ended up holding the ideals of, of learning, of applying that learning to the betterment of the country, and, and using its resource to train young men for a possible role as officers uh, should conflict ever come, was part of this sort of collective sense that the students at the university owed a debt to the country to, to serve it in every way they possibly could, including in time of war. So it was part of a general ethos that I think best exemplified the commitment that the university felt it had to the country and to the uh, prosperity of, of the country as a whole, uh, with all of its different scientific and medical and dental departments, this sort of thing. So it was, it was an intricate part of a much greater whole, but it was the most dramatic representation of that ideal. It may, certainly makes the reputation of the University of Toronto, and I'm not, I mean, not just the University of Toronto, but any COTC on any campus, uh, very different from today, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, it, 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 it's like another world. And I, I, I'm sorry for that in a way, because I think that something was lost when they, when they gave up on the COTC. Well, so what, what, let, let's get back to um, the basics here. What was, what was the COTC and, and how did it work? If you were a member of the COTC, well, what did you do? Okay, well, there are two ways to come to this. One, first of all, to explain to uh, our audience that the COTC was, in effect, a transplanted British idea that came to Canada uh, after the um, reforms of the British Army, after the Boer War, after the rather problematic time the British had had there. The idea of creating a trained group of militia officers through the universities took root in Britain and was brought here to Canada as a way of creating, a, a say, a militia or reserve that could be prepared at a fairly short notice for any kind of overseas involvement. So the rationale behind it was you have a small corps of a professional army trained at RMC, but then you have this wider group of citizen soldiers, young men trained as engineers, as doctors, as artillerymen, and all the rest of it that the university could provide. So a young man going into the COTC, and it was supposed to be a peacetime training corps. That was a thing, too. The wars gave it birth, but it was supposed to be a peacetime organization. But a first-year university student would come in, would choose... Uh, the basic training that they did in the first uh, year, drill, musketry, this sort of thing, as well as a series of courses that would almost be like a world affairs course today. And then as they progressed through the program, which was three years, uh, they would go on uh, summer camps, for example, to get some practical training, practical knowledge, write a series of examinations. It was a pretty strenuous process, uh, and it made demands on the students' time during the school year and during the summers. So at the end of it, a young man, let's say in the 1930s, coming out of the COTC would have a lieutenant certificate, which would qualify him for that rank, should the Canadian militia ever be mobilized and sent overseas. 
And uh, by the end of the 1930s, there were 10,000 uh, people who had gone through the COTC who were ready and willing to offer their skills, such as they were, to the formation of the Canadian Army at that time. So you learned how to shoot? <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> you learned how to take orders and how to issue orders, did you? Absolutely, yes. Um, and in fact, some of the, the guys I talked to who had been in the, in the COTC during the 1950s said that it was invaluable to them in their business careers, how to organize a meeting, how to accept and delegate responsibility. All of these sort of skills that were transferable to the different walks of life that they went into, particularly in business and in law and finance. It was part of, it was it was it was it was an uh, an addition to the skills you would learn at, at university the soft skills what we call today the soft skills of of, of persuasion and now your book makes the case that uh, the the COTC was organized in response to the declaration of war in 1914 but you also talk a lot about the K company that preceded it. Can you tell me a little bit more about K Company and the involvement in the Northwest Campaign of 1885? Certainly. Um, when I began the research, you know, the COTC, for practical purposes, started in 1914 and ended in 1968. But I began to see that the, the roots of military training went much deeper into this K Company, which had been formed in 1861 as part of the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada. Uh, again, in fear of what might happen out of the American uh, American Civil War with all of these uh, large Union armies and the threat of war between Britain and the United States. But as Ridgeway faded, uh, let's say the battle itself faded, the memory didn't, but uh, as uh, the company continued, it became a kind of university club in a way, that it was at a time when there wasn't much recreation for the students. The military company and the social and professional links that it offered to them was very attractive. So in the 1870s and 1880s, it was always a very well-populated uh, company. It was a big thing on the campus. To be part of it was a, was a real honor. And the professors who were the officers were very, very solicitous in, in maintaining the reputation of K Company as uh, the U of T Company, as it was called. And then in 1885, um, it's a very interesting time. Uh, the students were of two minds about this. They felt on the one hand that the Dominion government had not honored its promises to the Métis and the native people. So there was some criticism of the government's handling of the Northwest uh, affair. But at the same time, they felt they had a duty to go and suppress what was a rebellion. And so there were about 25 volunteers from the U of T who took part in the um, long journey out to Manitoba and Saskatchewan and actually took, took part in a number of the battles at Cut Knife and Fish Creek. Uh, fortunately, they didn't suffer any uh, casualties and nobody was killed, but there were some very prominent people uh, in that, including um, one man who was the father of Dean Acheson, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, who was always very proud of his Canadian ancestry, and a man named George Henry Needler, who was a fixture in the German department at the U of T and actually commanded one of the contingents during the First World War and was a member, I think he was the longest living, longest serving member of the Queen's Own Rivals of Canada. Uh, he lived to be 95 and was a soldier till the end of his days. So it was a quite a storied event, and there's a wonderful picture of the volunteers sitting on the front of University College after they came back. It's 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 again it's 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 a delight to see this picture. I wasn't aware of it, and and to see University College as the as the background uh, to this is, is simply remarkable. Now, what happened? So I mean, again, your book starts with it doesn't start with 1914, but clearly 1914 is a very important date. What happened on campus when war was declared on Germany in August 1914? The university, as you know, uh, has a long history, nearly 200 years now. But I would say that the fall of 1914 was by far the most dramatic time in the university's history. It will never be paralleled. Uh, the emotion on the campus, and it, it's almost sad to look back at it, as you would imagine, Patrice, because we know where this is headed. 
but the genuine enthusiasm and the patriotism and the uh, rush to the colors and the idea that they were fighting in a great cause to defend the things that were most precious to them, you know, British liberties threatened by Prussianism and all of that kind of rhetoric. And so they are a very earnest and very sincere bunch in 1914. They're not very well organized because they were overtaken by events. But gradually they began to cohere around this idea of an officer's training corps to make it more systematic, more selective. Uh, but as the war goes on, you can see the shift, and it's very telling from this sort of enthusiastic and, and uh, you know, patriotic duty, all that sort of thing. The rhetoric changes. And then by 1916, it's, we have to see this thing through. We cannot, we cannot settle for anything less than victory. And I remember one editorial in the Varsity that was very, very chilling, saying we have to go and avenge our fallen comrades. We have to get the people who did this to us. So the, the, the emotional fluctuations of the war are very, very striking. And what's interesting is there's a real contrast with that in the Second World War, which is a very flat experience. I think in a way to avoid the emotional tergiversations of, of the First World War. But it's in this context that the COTC is formed. Yes, yes. There's a recognition that, okay, we're sending young men to Belgium, to France, and uh, but we also need to bring the intelligence of a university community to training. Well, that was a big thing. They talk about giving intelligent direction to the course of the war. And so these young men as junior officers would, by virtue of their university backgrounds, uh, be the logical ones to do that. And I must say, too, that when you look at the service records, a lot of them did live up to that. You know, so many of them became very effective in battle. Um, you know, the number of medals they won, the battles they participated in, uh, it was not all just talk. A lot of them took this very, very seriously and excelled in the roles in which they had been thrust. One could argue that it's marked the campus to this day. Uh, reading your book, I was, I remembered, I mean, one of the most moving Remembrance Day services that I have ever attended was the one at Soldiers Tower at University of Toronto. Um, what happened on November 11th, 1924? Yeah, that's, that's a very significant date uh, in the university's history as well, because that was the first time that the Soldiers Tower became the location for the Remembrance Day service, which has been uh, a fixture ever since. And they had had, of course, Remembrance Day services in the years before, but this was the first time that there was a kind of collective mourning of the university's fallen. And if you see photographs of that event, everyone is there. They, they gave everybody the morning off. Everyone was there. And they said when, when the clock struck 11, when the minute of silence took place, all they could hear was the tolling of the bell at City Hall, which is more than a mile away. This absolute perfect silence. And what's also very striking is that in the years after the war, in the 1920s, People would stay for hours after the ceremony because they could see the faces behind the names on that screen wall. They knew who they were. And so the solemnity and the, and the almost this reverential uh, veneration of the university's fallen lasted well into the 1930s. And I must say, Patrice, that the university really never got over it. Well, yeah, I mean, I get that sense reading your book. That ceremony... Maybe this is your your device as an author, but it seems, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, did it set the tone on campus during the interwar years? I mean, this is very sobering. University of Toronto lost many young boys. How do you organize a COTC after such loss uh, in the context of this kind of remembrance? I mean, who signs up for this kind of thing? Well, exactly. And of course, the, the year right after the war, 1919-1920, the COTC almost disappeared. But what is very interesting, and, and people like Jonathan Vance uh, have been very good at showing this, that 
their understanding of war is much different than our own in the sense that they felt that the war had been meaningful and it had it had been about something. We've, we've lost that sense, I think, today where we sometimes decry it as a waste and this and that. But I think for the people in the 1920s, they were so emotionally invested in that war, they, they couldn't decry it. They couldn't say it was all a waste uh, because that would, in a sense, defame the dead and make it all seem like it had been a, a, a terrible waste of young lives as it had been. But on the other hand, um, the rightness of the Allied cause and the, and the idea of sacrifice, of duty, all these ideals that you know, sort of raise our eyebrows today were very much in currency then. And so the university president, uh, Robert Faulkner, and a number of the officers who'd come back from France thought that uh, a more modified, you know, a much more, uh, uh, say, um, select group of officer training uh, uh, cadets would be a good thing for the university to carry on with, that it would perpetuate the ideals for which the war had been fought. Uh, it would never be more than a couple of hundred of the students, but it would be a symbol of the university's continuing commitment to the defense of Canada and to the readiness of its young men to take up arms if, God forbid, it ever came again. And it comes again. <laughs> it does come again. It does come again. You describe the effort as, as flatter in the Second World War. What do you mean by that? What is the impact? What is the contribution of the U of T and of the COTC during the Second World War? Yeah, I'll just preface this by saying that in the 1930s, all of this comes to a head when you have the peace groups and all the sort of um, appeasement policies in the air. And that was a very important part of student life and outlook. But what we forget is that the COTC at Toronto and other universities actually increased in numbers during the 1930s. And there was a real rift between the students who felt that preparedness and readiness will be the deterrent to war, not the peace movements. And so in 1939, the contingent could, you know, it, it septupled in number uh, overnight. It went from 300 to nearly 1,800 uh, in September of 1939, when it was still voluntary. But the Second World War, coming to your question, all of the people at the university, uh, President Cody, all of the senior administrators, all the senior professors, they'd been through the First World War. They, it's been there, done that sort of thing. And this time they felt, let's take a much more systematic approach. We're not going to rush off madly in all directions. We're going to systematize and organize this so that we have a coherent and effective contingent from the word go, which is basically what they did in 1939-40. They, they enrolled all the students that wanted to sign up, they organized them, trained them, and built it into the university curriculum. But the real test came in the spring and summer of 1940 when the German victories in Europe just sent a massive shockwave through people. Uh, I, I think we forget just how frightening that seemed to people at the time. And so in the summer of 1940, uh, Henry John Cody, the president, went to Ottawa to negotiate with the Dominion government on how the National Resources Mobilization Act would be put into place with regard to the universities. Because if you were going to institute mandatory training, it meant that all the young men of the country would be out in these camps and the university year would be disrupted and all of that. And what he did, and he deserves enormous credit for this, and, and Cody's contemporaries held him in the highest regard as the man who had kept the universities going during the war. And I think they've forgotten that at U of T. I don't think they realize quite what he did for the University of Toronto and all the other universities across the country, including the French-speaking ones, was he negotiated a system whereby the universities themselves could administer the military training in conjunction with the classes and courses and so forth, so that the university students would make a commitment to a certain number of hours training and then go to the summer camps, which would enable them to do two things. And so this was the system the universities adopted during the war, and, and, and basically um, they ran training camps 
as well as universities, uh, as best they could for the duration of the war, at the same time producing highly qualified officers and technicians for the artillery, the medical corps, the engineers, the signals, and so forth, putting the university's brain power to work as well as its manpower. So I think if there's a hero in the story of the COTC, it's Henry John Cody, a completely forgotten man today. Yes, I agree, I agree. Now, you raise the issue of, of the relationship between the COTC and the Department of Defense uh, in Ottawa. Generally, in, in the, the 55-year history that, you, uh, that you've written, what was, the, what was the relationship between the COTC and the Department of Defense? Did they get along? Uh, it was like a, it's like a couple that keeps breaking up. <laughs> yeah, that, the, the department, you know, the militia department and the Department of Defense, uh, there were times when they were always telling the COTC people, we, we couldn't make it without you. You, you are the, uh, you're the mainstay of our officer and the military training programs. They certainly heard a lot of that in the 1930s. But at the same time, and one thing I, I came to admire about the COTC, they ran that thing on a shoestring. They spent nothing on it. And it's the, it's the financial integrity of the COTC that most impressed me. They wasted nothing. They recycled everything. And in the 20s and 30s, the cadets handed back their pay at the end of the year with, you know, $15, $20 just to keep the whole thing going. And so the militia department and the Department of Defense were getting a great deal out of this for very little expenditure. But there's always been this sort of rift in the Canadian military between the professional and the militia soldiers. And the Department of Defense would go through these phases where they would tend to disregard the militia as amateur soldiers and the COTC as a kind of plaything, without realizing sometimes, especially during the Second World War, just what uh, an effort the COTC, COTC was making to prepare young men for the roles as officers. Um, and then when the militia system begins to change in the late 1950s and 1960s, the Department of Defense basically turned its back on the COTC, uh, which in retrospect, seems like a big mistake. It was very cost-effective. They, they never ran out of volunteers, and they severed a very important link between the universities and the army or, or the armed forces. Um, one man I talked to who was uh, very highly placed in the Canadian Army in the 1990s said, it was almost as though we gave ourselves a frontal lobotomy when we got rid of the COTC. Well, you write about the experience of the 1960s, when uh, the military presence is, is obviously much less appreciated on campus. Um, Ottawa seems to be sensitive to that. How did things evolve? How did the COTC come to its end in 1968? Yeah, well, it was a long, withering death. Um, it started in 1957 when the Canadian military doctrine changed from uh, a core of a professional army to be augmented by militia reserves and, and reserve officers, such as the COTC had prepared. They went instead for a kind of professional army ready at a moment's notice in case of a nuclear or, or massive war that they wouldn't have time to wait anymore. So they sort of put all of their eggs in that basket that they needed a, a strong professional army that would draw all the resources uh, to it and, and sort of leave the militia to, to wither on the vine, which is in fact what happened. So it was a change in military policy. And again, the um, the RMC people, and I, I don't want to cast blame on them, but they always had a very dim view of the militia and militia officers, despite the record of the militia officers in the First and Second World Wars. And so they just thought that the COTC was expendable. There was a reserve officer training program that they could use through the universities by ones and twos if they wanted. And so they basically just let the thing die, despite the, um, 
very strong defense that the COTC officers put up. And a lot of these guys were Second World War veterans. A lot of them were professors who had been giving their time to the contingent and, and doing their best to maintain what had been a very high standard of education in the COTC through the 1950s. If I can give one example, one of the guys who taught me Latin was a man named D.F.S. Thompson, who did the definitive, uh, definitive editions of the Roman poets Horace and Catullus. And you would think there could be no more... You know, no better example of some sedentary bookworm than he. And he was this little guy. I think a gust of wind would carry him away. But he was a COTC instructor who had worked behind Japanese lines in Burma with a special operations executive with the British during the war. So he knew what he was talking about. And so these are the kinds of guys the COTC had as instructors. And this is what I think the Defense Department forgot, is that there was a lot of human experience and a lot of human wisdom in that program that they just threw away. But surely, Eric, the the campus of the, the University of Toronto campus of the 1960s was a hostile place to anything military. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, or am I wrong? I mean, is... is, is... You're, I, I think we're wrong and we're right, because what struck me, both in the 1930s and the 1960s, and it's interesting how the 30s kind of anticipate the 60s in that regard, was that there were a lot of students who wanted nothing to do with these student radicals. They just thought they were nuts. And, and the fact that the, the, the COTC was turning people away, even up to its last year. Oh, really? And, and, and one of the, 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 the men who was second to last com commandant of the Corps said it broke his heart in 1967. They had over 100 young men show up to sign up for the COTC, and they could only take 14. That's all they were allowed. So I think what happened, Patrice, is that there were a, lot, was a very noisy minority of anti-war people and all of the sort of 60s activists that we think of. But that tends to deflect our attention away from a lot of students who are very serious people and, and, and didn't quite buy into the whole uh, 60s mentality. And I think that's what the university and the, and the army forgot. I think they mistook the noise for the substance. And um, it's a shame because I think they could have kept it going. So the military basically disappears from campus after 1968. What do you think the impact of that loss is on the university? Well, I think... And I thought of myself uh, as a rather witless undergraduate in the 1970s. I had no idea of any of this. And I'd walk by the Soldiers Tower or, or the old COTC headquarters and not really get it. And I think it's a far more important part of the university's past than I think a lot of the people there tend to realize. And it's the, there, there are traces of the COTC everywhere. You know, the, the, the plaques in the buildings or the little memorials here and there that people don't quite notice as they walk by. But I think. Also, it, it had a very deleterious effect on the armed forces because they cut themselves off not only from a source of officers or, or people dedicated to military service, but also from a considerable segment of the Canadian population. And we're so ill-informed about the army and defense issues in this country. Um, I remember talking to a fellow who'd been in Parliament, an MP, and he said when he got there in the 60s, a lot of the people there had been in the COTC. Ed Broadbent, for one. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, the last person on earth you'd expect that to be true of. Uh, he was in the, um, in the Air Force, uh, COTC. And so there are a lot of people who may not have been Army guys by career, but they certainly knew about the Army, and they certainly knew about defense issues from an inside perspective and rather from a rather distant and uninformed perspective. So I think it, it, it cut off um, a source of knowledge, a source of recruits, and, and I think tended to 
promote the unreality of our view of the world here in Canada. Um, you know, so much blood and treasure has been poured out in defense of what we claim are our values, and we have no idea of what went into that, which is what drives me crazy uh, when I see Afghanistan right now. It really, but the, the the reality is at the end of the COTC on the University of Toronto campus and across the country uh, affected the culture on campus. It, it demilitarized the campus completely. Okay, you've you've mentioned a few people you've interviewed, so I, I, it leads me to, to ask the classic Champlain Society question about your sources. How'd you go about writing this book? Well, I uh, went down to the U of T archives and I met a man named Harold Averill, uh, who's retired now, but uh, Harold probably has more on his little finger than, than most uh, professors have in their whole brain. I mean, he is an absolute fountain of knowledge about the University of Toronto and of history in general. And so I got into the archives, and the COTC had a very uh, large um, uh, sort of fawns there. And I would say, Patrice, that the most rewarding part of this book, not only what I found out about a university I'd known very little of and was surprised at the depth and breadth of the story, but the archivists, the staff there, are wonderful people. Yes. And knowledgeable and helpful and friendly, and I, I gave them drafts of the chapters to read. I got so much good uh advice and feedback from them that I would strongly recommend to any graduate student or, or let's say, a young uh, professor starting out on his or her career, get into the archives, get to know those people because there's gold in them in our hills. And I would strongly suggest, too, that anybody interested in the history of the university COTCs at UBC, at Alberta, at the French universities, there's a whole range of stuff to be done there. It's such a promising subject. It's an unwritten history, isn't it? Unwritten history, absolutely. And either individually of each university or as a collective history of the COTC, that would be a project well worth doing. But you interviewed people. You got to meet people who had been um, members of the COTC in the past. I did, yeah. And what was your impression of these people? Well, it was almost like talking to my grandparents. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you feel a little tear here. It's an older Canada. Um, yes. But these were, these were guys who had been in the core in the 1950s, and they'd grown up through the Depression and the Second World War, and their parents had told them, you have a duty to the country. You should enlist in this. You know, God forbid you ever go to war, but you should make this part of your education. And they'd gone on to very successful careers in business and law, but they had a great sense of civic duty, that they'd given a lot of their time to charitable or, or other beneficial work. But the most, the most abiding impression I carried away was, a, was from a man who'd gone into the police force after he'd been in the COTC. He was one of the last to go through, and he said he was on the job for 32 years, and he never took out his gun once. The reason was because his officer training had shown him how to diffuse situations, take charge of things, so that the violence was kept to an absolute minimum. And I think that's where, the, well, yeah, very impressive, very impressive guys. And I think that's what we lost when we lost the COTC, was that kind of citizenship. Uh, that, that kept hitting me over the head. As I say, it seems like an older Canada, but one that I admire very much. Well, they, I mean, the university administration still aspire to those things, uh, conflict resolution and, and, and you know, uh, living with each other and all these all these fine values it's just uh, they they've missed out or they've missed out on this one element of the strategy to 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 teach people these kinds of skills these kinds of soft skills as we say soft skills but i think you know even today we need good people in the armed forces we need good young men and good women of all these different backgrounds we have an enormous advantage in canada we have a cultural connection to everywhere on earth because of our population 
We have an educated cadre of young people who could do this country enormous good if officer training or military training were part of the regime at university. And it's an option. It was always voluntary. So why not call on these people and, and, and take advantage of, of the enormous uh, skills and, and, and cultural outreach that they would have? So you're making the argument that uh, the COTC should be revived, that we should bring them back. I think in some form <laughs> it should be, yes. Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry it wasn't around when I was at the university. Yeah. I, it would have done me a world of good. Now it's had, somewhere along the line, the, the spirit of the COTC uh, was probably with you. Well, let's talk about, about a bit about you as we, as we finish this. Uh, this is not your first book. You've published on Byzantine warfare in the 10th century, <laughs> when the Ottoman Empire was really uh, arguably at one of its first uh, – you know, living its best successes. The, the yeah. Turks are starting to show up, yeah. <laughs> uh, you've also published on Canadian battlefields in Italy, as well as a very a beautiful volume on Canadian epitaphs of the Great War. What brings you to this topic? You're not a military man by any stretch of the imagination, but somehow this is the spirit of the COTC has been with you. Well, as I say, one of the regrets I have is that I did not do military service. Um, I grew up at a time when it wasn't really available or fashionable, and I, I do regret that because I, I have a great admiration for our military. But I would say that doing Byzantine history, and, 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 and by great good luck having the professor that I did who helped me find the topic that I did, uh, was not dissimilar from the COTC because the Byzantines wrote all of these military manuals. They wrote all these things on how to be a general, how to organize an army. So it was really just going from one era to another. Uh, and at the same time, I think, and maybe other people have felt this too, Patrice, that it was only by getting out of a Canadian context that I was able to appreciate this country more when I came back to it. I think you need some time to separate yourself from what you know and what's familiar and then come back to it having seen something as different as Byzantine or other kinds of history can be. And so it enhanced my appreciation for what this country is and what what our soldiers did in those wars. And um, as I say, I, I think some time away from it did me a lot of good as well. Uh, you come back with a much greater appreciation for the place you came from. Well, it's a fascinating trajectory, uh, Eric, and I'm very grateful for your time and joining me to talk about your book. Thank you very much. Patrice, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for your interest. and his book is entitled Varsity Soldiers, the University of Toronto Contingent of the Canadian Officers Training Corps, published by the University of Toronto Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. I don't tire of naming these names. There's a way for you, the listeners, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations. That always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of the pandemic on August 31st, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Music